I'm Catherine. And I'm Gail, and we want to welcome you to Women Over 70 Aging Reimagined, our award-winning weekly podcast. Please visit womenover70.com and consider joining our Aging Reimagined Circle, which is our sustaining membership fund, so we may continue to inspire women to age with curiosity, courage, and creativity. Members enjoy monthly programming and probing discussions, and we hope to see you there. And today we're delighted to be talking with Gretchen Wilbur, age 70. Gretchen's a permanent resident of a compound town in the mountains of cockpit, cockpit country in Jamaica. Now, Gretchen's the only foreign-born white woman currently living in this historical village of the Maroon people. Since childhood, Gretchen has had exposure to an involvement with black people. Her first transformative experience with desegregation was being in the first class of white students to desegregate an all-black school in North Carolina in 1970. In graduate school, she focused her studies on multicultural education, along with gender and race equity. She then served as executive director of curriculum for court-ordered desegregation in magnet schools in Kansas City, Missouri. And during the 1980s, Gretchen worked in teacher preparation training teachers about affirmative practices. And then in 2009, she joined the full-time faculty of the then School for New Learning at DePaul University, where she and I were very close colleagues for over 10 years. So with this backdrop, we're going to focus our conversation with Gretchen on the past five years in Hong Kong, Jamaica, and her plans for the future. And I must say that I've been waiting for over four years for Gretchen to turn 70 so that we could have this conversation with her. So welcome, Gretchen, to women over 70. Um, but before we delve into your experiences living in the Maroon culture in Jamaica, is there anything else you would like to add about your professional background or your and any aspects of your personal life? Well, yes, I can say that um, I have an adult son in the military, living with his family in Oklahoma. And uh, I have a 20-month-old grandson who I've just hung out with for uh, three weeks. Uh, what a joy. <laughs> uh, also, I have two sets of threes that um, have I want to share because they have had an impact on my development and my growth. Um, professionally, first, I earned tenure at three different universities in the field of education. Um, personally, 10 years ago, I had three punches in about a year. Um, I initiated a divorce from my husband of 27 years. I... Um, reconnected with a college uh, boyfriend uh, and we had a loving relationship until he died 14 months later and then I was diagnosed and treated for triple negative breast cancer mm -hmm. so those are my um, two additions to what has uh, punched me and uh giving me joy at the same time. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. And so just tell us a bit about your journey. What brought you to Jamaica and why have you decided to make a compound your permanent home? 
Well, I was um, awarded um, a grant as a U.S. Fulbright Scholar to uh, for nine months to study, uh, do research and teaching in Jamaica in the area of using the cultural arts to actively engage students of all ages in their learning. And so a compong uh, was a component of my proposal um, because of how they continue to live the legacy of integrating cultural arts into their daily practice. What else brought you to a compong as a permanent residence? Well, I fell in love with the land, uh, with the people, with the lifestyle, um, and the connection to the earth. And in the, I wasn't looking for it, but I fell in love with the man too. <laughs> and so, um, we started building a house after I had um, uh, been there for eight or nine months. And um, so we decided the connection was real. <laughs> That's beautiful. That's just beautiful. And and so you you stay there. You've decided to make it your permanent home. What What else is there about it now that you're a citizen of a compound? What, what else is there about it that you love? Well, I love the, um, the way of life, and it's, it has been an adjustment as well and continues to be a, an adjustment. It, it is truly a community of caring and kindness. And so um, the, the community greets um, you giving thanks for life, each and every day and if you need something or ask for something people will just stop what they're doing and um, take care of your request and it's genuine and um so they've they've welcomed me into the community um as a member and that's um that's wonderful and then also um i, I realized Having lived in Chicago for 10 years amid the um, cement, glass, and steel, that I was missing being able to put my foot directly on the earth. Mm -hmm. And where we are in the mountains, um, I can do that every day. And um, there is bush and beauty um, that surrounds me. And uh, the temperature's not bad, and the sun's not bad either. Tell our listeners about the Maroons, because a lot of people don't, first of all, wouldn't know Kong Kong, and probably in a sewer would know about the Maroons as a people. Well, the Maroons um, were runaway slaves in the late 1600s, and... Um, they they represented the represented three African tribes, and they all came together around the common mission of defeating the British. And so they they are um, identified as initiating guerrilla warfare. 
So they used the mountains and the um, land formations to secretly track um, the British forces. Mm -hmm. And um, so they were very effective at <laughs> killing them. <laughs> and um, the British uh, requested, uh, admitted to defeat, and requested that a peace treaty be developed uh, between the British and the Maroon people. And so as a part of that peace treaty, um, they, uh, a compong is a sovereign state. So it's not Jamaica, but it's a sovereign state of the Maroon people. And so um, they are, as as a part of that treaty, which was signed in 1738, they are self-governing and autonomous. Uh, so that their 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 legacy um, lives on in terms of their values of freedom, of courage, and of respect respect of people and respect of the land. Mm. Fascinating. Gretchen, you uh, said just a minute ago that there, there was a, a process of adapting and you're still adapting to the culture. And um, I think, and, and I know now you're writing stories for a book about your experiences living in the Maroon culture. Um, can you t maybe just share with us your, your uh, working chapter titles would, would give us a glimpse into what, you're, what you have been adapting to? Yes. Well, um, one chapter title is Community, um, and uh, another is what, I, what I'm calling Death, um, but it's, it, but it's uh, depicting the uh, death rituals um, there and the uh, allegiance to their ancestors and ancestral spirits. Um, others are... Uh, Titles are money, <laughs> time, uh, connection to the earth, um, oh, love and sex, and identity. Wow. So choose one or two and, and give us a sense of what, what you've needed to adapt to, are still adapting to. Well, um, community is an easy one. Um, as far as my adaption, um, because it is a community of caring and kindness. The adaptation I've had to make is um, when I, I use the example of when I need anything, people drop what they're doing. When they need anything and a <laughs> knock on my door, the expectation is that I will stop what I'm doing. And so um, if I'm focusing on writing my stories, <laughs> I see it as an interruption, you know, and um, I have my time and my focus and my needs. So, um, you know, the fact that it's out of caring and kindness has made that adaptation easier and easier. But it's the... It's the it's the Western individualism 
coming in 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 direct contact with communal living. <laughs> yeah, a more difficult one um, is the which sort of springs from the same dichotomy is the notion of time. So um, soon come, people will say, uh, when I ask, well, when are you coming again or when are you coming back? Soon come, soon come. So I think it's uh, soon, right? What's soon? A couple hours? Well, there's no time. There's no time. So you might see them in the evening or you might see them two weeks from them. <laughs> um, and part of that, it, what I've come to understand is that um, because they live in the moment and they're, they're present in the moment, anything can present itself. And so they go with the flow. Um, my upbringing and my professional career has um, required us to have a, a, a plan. I remember my father, ever since I was a little kid, he would say, if you're on time, you're late. If you're <laughs> early, you're on time. So that um, what my adaptation has given me a lot of opportunity and beneficial opportunity although i've get frustrated but beneficial opportunity to look at the impact of my own cultural uh upbringing and my own cultural experiences and how that has limited me and also how it has benefited me it do the uh, do the two cultures clash for you ever? Well, it, yes, yes. You find it difficult at some points to to um, be in the moment as you should, living in a pronounce it for me a a compound a compound. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yes. It, um, very recently, I was told there was an incident, a very unpleasant incident. And, um, Oral, my partner, and then a dear, dear friend said the same thing to me, said, you are too friendly. They don't respect you. Okay, so that just turned my world upside down uh -huh. because I was raised with, oh, you're always friendly, you know, you, to anybody you meet. You're kind, you, you make them feel comfortable, you chat with them, you smile. Um, and here they were saying I was too friendly, and at first I interpreted it as it's my fault that they disrespected me. Hmm. Um, and so when I heard my dear friend say the same thing that Oral had said, um, it really um, 
I didn't personalize it, but I was still, um, as I said, it turned my world worldview upside down. Mm-hmm. So in that way, it clashed. Um, but I understand what they're saying and how the culture um, is not uh, friendly until you have a respectful relationship mm-hmm. rather than the reverse being friendly and then developing respectful relationship. I'd like to have you talk a bit about identity, which you and I have just talked about a great deal. So there, there you are, you're a, a highly accomplished professional. You've written books and articles. You've done research, you teach, you mentor, uh, you lead you lead major organizations, and then you come to a Hong Kong where they don't really have much interest in that. Right. Right. So who are you? Well, um, that's a good question. <laughs> um, wow, that's it. I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. Um, I know from... From my, how it impacts my identity is that it opens the door for me to live in the moment. And I'm not bound by the, um, uh, I'm not bound by the constraints of my success in the profession. So that time um, is is not an issue, and uh, preparing for class is not an issue, and writing that academic journal article is not an issue. Uh, so I can choose what I want to do anytime, anywhere, and so. In a in a way, it's it's uh, freeing me, but at the same time, my friends and and former colleagues are very important to me, um, and keep me grounded in um, who who I am, who I have been, and who I be now. <laughs> <laughs> You want, so you, you have, I, I know there are three things I want to bring up. So you choose one or talk about all of them. One is that you and Oral, uh, you built a beautiful home full of color. I've been there. It's just amazing. You have a commercial bar on the roof top. You have guest houses, uh, and you, you do weaving and you create mobiles. And then you also have created your founder of a foundation. So in five minutes, <laughs> tell us about each of those. <laughs> well, uh, let me start with the foundation because it really does connect a lot of those those things. Um, so the the foundation is named Respecting Culture and Earth. And um, I set it up to advance the cultural arts um, and environmental sustainability 
for economic independence. Now, those are a lot of big words, but basically we support efforts um, and fundraise for efforts that actively engage community members in deciding their own approaches to realize their self-determined priorities. Um, and uh, much of the focus at, at this point in the foundation's history is in, in doing that in a compong. And so, for example, one of the projects that we have going now is called Pondside Bounties. And Pondside is the neighborhood we live in in a compong. And it's growing the growing the local um, uh, economy of Pondside um, by cultivating native plants and um, um, producing healing teas that will distribute across the globe. And also in creating opportunities for um students of all ages to come and hike the trail to the hut where the plants are planted um, and do um, learn about the history and culture of the Maroons and um, learn about the medicinal qualities of the healing plants and also uh, engage in art, artistic uh, workshops to use the the um, fruits of uh, fruits of the earth to make art. So, for example, in making the mobiles, I use found objects from my neighborhood, right? And so, those are seeds. They are snail shells. They are seed pods. Um, and there are other artists in the community that do amazing things with coconut shells, um, jewelry making from seeds, purses, uh, necklaces. Um, so that there's a, it's a way to support an industry that's, it exists, well, to, support artistic endeavors that exist and try and promote them in such a way it will grow the local economy. So was tea growing a an ongoing um, product that, that uh, was there before you started this? Yes. They have always, uh, like Oral's father is a bush doctor, and he knows so much about a whole variety of plants and what they what problems they solve what and and what sicknesses they prevent and so they have the marines have always harvested the native plants for medicinal purposes and now we're trying to cultivate them so that um, they produce more and it's easier to harvest and um, it, it then positions them to uh, have 
work in a distribution center and and to um, distribute their their native plants. Is, is there commerce in the area? Actual well, it's uh, there. The economy is primarily driven by uh, farming and by tourism, mm-hmm. and um, the the farmers do sell um, their produce uh, on a wholesale basis um, to to people who come and collect them. So, are, so you mentioned that you one of the important goals is that through the foundation you're uh, wanting to put these resources and development in the hands of the of people of the people themselves that and so i'm wondering um are you facing any encountering any kind of barriers to doing that or what's what's that like to try to bring this kind of economic growth to the to the area it it has been uh, really fascinating to me because we have a team of um, about six people that are uh, leading this project, mm-hmm. and um, they, I think, they need to communicate <laughs> and make collaborative decisions about um, how they're going to proceed, how much of the job is worth how they're going to share the money that they receive, uh, whether it's equally or whether it's based on how much um, uh, hours each person has worked. Um, And that has been um, really interesting because that is new to them to actually collaborate with the person that's going to pay them um, on how decisions are made about the level of pay and um, the distribution of pay. It, you know, it's been it's been really wonderful because uh, some people say, "Oh no, uh, oh no, I don't want to distribute the money." Oh no, um, and so there's an avoidance to getting involved in those discussions and then others who i wouldn't expect are really speaking out and saying well we need to we need to negotiate this up front and we need to decide what exactly we're going to do for this amount of money so it's it's um it's working in terms of shared decision making but it's it's a fascinating process do the Maroons have a currency? Uh, well, they, they, uh, the former chief um, uh, developed a currency, um, but it, it, it's not used. It's, it's just a, a souvenir. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of like a kibbutz. Uh, <laughs> uh... In some ways, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So let's bring it back. Well, first of all, how how if some if people are interested in finding out more about the foundation or supporting it in some way, how how could they do that? Well, they could. We have a, a web page that's www.respectingcultureandearth.org. 
is and spelled out? Yes, and it's spelled out um, in the in the web address. Okay, good. So, is there, you know, we all we always ask our guests now that you're the in value that you've reached this new decade. How do you think about your own aging and uh, your aging process? If you pay much attention to it at all. <laughs> well, it, it it was it was a wonderful thing to think about. And at first, I said uh, to myself, "I don't, I don't, I don't know how I think about aging and the aging process." But um, I I guess I I do, but I just haven't articulated it. And now I I will. Um, tomorrow is not promised, and so I. I really believe that now, you know, uh, it helps with being in the culture where time is not important <laughs> and living in the moment is. So tomorrow is not promised. Then I, then I pull from, uh, Bob Marley. Don't worry. Be happy. <laughs> and, um, and, 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 Living in the moment is um, a delight, and it's a new thing. And being seventy and older, and being retired, um, gives me the opportunity to and the flexibility to do that. Mm-hmm. I thought also about the aging process in terms of my body image, um, and and you know you get saggy saggy stuff and lines and wrinkles and uh in my skin (laughs) um so i'm interestingly enough i'm beginning to see myself as beautiful yay that's good yeah Yeah. and uh that that ties in with there there's a uh, a way of saying in Jamaica, "Be who you be," and so I'm respecting who I be. You're hurry. Beautiful. And you're in a uh, a very caring, accepting kind of uh, community, so yeah. you you can be who you be. Yes. Yes, without without these judgments and uh, expectations and uh, cultural, uh, well, of course they have cultural messages, but um, with without feeling without feeling the pressure of the messages that I've come to take for granted. Can be, can be limited. Yeah. And one more question, and and that is, living in Chicago, uh, being a professor, having having a um, high level job as you've had, how, how do you feel about the difference in what material possessions mean in my culture here? And your culture, where where you are, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, that that connects with the with the money chapter. 
Yes. Yeah. If you have money, um, then you acquire those possessions and then you have to, you have to, uh, learn that they're not as important as life itself, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, in, in a culture where there's very little money, then, um, there's satisfaction with what you have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Wonderful. <laughs> well, Gretchen, thank you so much for talking with us. I've just been, as you know, waiting and waiting to have this conversation with you and share you with our community. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Our pleasure. And listeners, thank you for your loyalty. Because of you, our numbers are growing all across the country and overseas, and this is a good thing. Still, we need more subscribers and reviews on Apple Play and YouTube. So please support women over 70 and let your voice be heard. Help us change the conversation about women aging.